Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? I want Europe part of the game. I want Europe more involved at the external level and we will have the occasion in close cooperation with the member states uh, to be uh, very active, to be very committed, not only in the short term, but also in the mid-term and in the long term. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard Charles Michel, the new European Council president, speaking last week in Zagreb about the EU's role in the world. And you heard him there saying he wants Europe to be part of the game, which left him open to criticism on a number of fronts. First of all, it suggested the EU is not in the game at the moment, and certainly I think there's a lot of people in different parts of the world who would object to being seen as basically pawns in Charles Michel's game or anybody else's. Um, so let's bring in our podcast panel to discuss that and many other things. Hi, first of all, to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. Matt Karnichnik, there you go. You don't have to do the bit in German this week. Reem's let you off the hook. Matt in Berlin. Hi. But why is Reem always first? That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies first, Matt. As a gentleman, I, you should know that. I, I believe in gender equality. Okay, well, I'll bear that in mind for uh, for next week. And But if we were doing it in alphabetical order, then Annabelle would be first. So she's the one who should be feeling aggrieved. Uh, Annabelle Dixon in London, hi. Hello. I'm also a lady, by the way. Indeed, too. But I was just saying, <laughs> just if so we were going know. by it, I, I wouldn't have doubted it for a second. But if we were trying to do it in a way that, that did not one. take any account of, gen, of gender... Then I was thinking of alphabetical order. Anyway, let's uh, get into um, the subjects for discussion this week. And uh, once again, uh, the EU and, and the world stage. There's a lot of people here in Brussels who who say they are very keen for Europe to be a, a player, as, as Charles Michel said, to be in the game. Um, and we have, uh, you know, as we've talked about before, Ursula von der Leyen talking about a geopolitical European Commission. Charles Michel himself seems very engaged in this, spent the weekend uh, uh, jet-setting around the Middle East so much so they didn't uh, have time to meet your old friend Matt, the uh, Austrian Chancellor uh, Sebastian Kurz stood him up uh, here in Brussels uh, and of course we do actually have a high representative here for foreign policy uh, Joseph Borrell who got a bit grumpy when uh, our colleague David Herzenhorn asked him about whether the EU wasn't doing a, a great job of uh, communicating lately. So let's start with Reem again actually because you were uh, with Emmanuel Macron uh, down in Pau where he was doing his own kind of geopolitical bit with the leaders of the Sahel. You know, is the EU speaking with one voice at the moment? Do French diplomats feel that they're all on the same page with uh, colleagues in Berlin and other places? 
on Libya, which is probably the big topic of this week, uh, on Iran, on the other big geopolitical issues? Well, I think it depends on, obviously, the issues. Uh, on Iran, the E3 and EU, so the France, UK and Germany uh, definitely seem to be on the, on the same wavelength, with France clearly leading the way when it comes to Iran and how the Europeans are positioning. On Libya, it's it's more complicated. Right now, word out of Paris is that, you know, it's true that in the past, perhaps France was kind of freelancing on its own and not really working together with Germany or Italy, but all that is in the past. And now they're all on the same line and working toward the same goal. Now, what we hear from the other side is that that's not exactly completely true. You know, we're looking at this uh, Berlin conference on Libya that's supposed to take place um, on Sunday. And, uh, you know, some are telling us that France has behind the scenes been trying to water down uh, language in the possible final communique of the Berlin conference when it comes to uh, sort of the arms embargo and, and ensuring that the arms embargo that's in place is actually respected. So we'll see, we'll see, um, you know, what ends up making it into the communique. On Libya as well, we saw a very interesting tweet from Josep Borrell that seemed to be kind of accusing, without saying it uh, explicitly, accusing, you know, France and Italy and Germany of kind of being naive when they say there is no military solution. And I asked this question today to Emmanuel Macron, actually, and he said... You know, he kind of agrees with with uh, Borrell that some people will find a way to make it a military solution. And, you know, he's talking about Russia and Turkey. Uh, he sort of referenced the Syria example and that uh, indeed he agrees that the Europeans need to be doing more. Yeah, Matt, what do you make of it? It seems like we've seen quite, uh, you know, developments on both Iran and Libya this week. Initially on Libya, it looked like the Europeans had been caught flat-footed, left behind by Putin and Erdogan. Uh, but then that ceasefire that they uh, were trying to broker didn't uh, seem to come to pass or, or didn't really last long. And, you know, perhaps the Europeans were smarter to hang back. And then we've seen the, the E3 anyway, the big three from the countries uh, from which you guys are, are dialing in all come together to trigger this dispute resolution mechanism in the Iran nuclear deal. So are the Europeans getting their act together, I guess, on the on the geopolitical front? Oh, God. Yeah, well, I, you know, getting their act together. <laughs> you don't might sound be, convinced. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that might be an overstatement. I thought, I thought it was interesting what Reem was saying about the perception in, in France that France is clearly leading on Iran, for example. And I, I think this is part of the problem is that everybody thinks that they're the key player in this in these various issues. And what that leads to is, in fact, a uh, lack of, of, of real consensus, as, as we've seen in Libya. You know, we'll see what, what, what happens on, on Sunday in Berlin. This is something that Merkel has actually quietly been engaged in for, for months. She's met separately with all of, of the key players. But, you know, Germany obviously isn't militarily involved there. I think a lot of German diplomats would say, well, you know, France kind of 
got the Europeans into this mess to begin with under Sarkozy several years ago. If you're talking about military options, this is sort of the stock German answer you you often hear is that, well, it doesn't really work out as well as as many people uh, hope. And, you know, if you look at a situation like Mali, which is another area where where the French are uh, heavily involved militarily, you have to wonder, well, what is the, you know, real exit strategy there? And, and uh, the, the Germans are, are in there in a kind of supportive role. And I, I think if you're talking about, you know, Europe's role in foreign policy, these are the kind of questions, you know, that you really have to start addressing is what do you really want to achieve, number one? And the other thing is that, you know, are you ever really going to achieve a consensus? And, and, and there are people you know, now in, in Berlin at least saying, you know, maybe the idea shouldn't be to try and force some EU-wide consensus, but instead to just try and bring, as we're discussing now, the, the, the main players together and then have maybe separate forum for smaller countries so they f- at least feel that they're being heard. Uh, I guess one thing is that we do have a kind of new team in town, and I think you can see that here in Brussels in, in any case uh, with the new foreign policy chief plus uh, Charles Michel new in office, Ursula von der Leyen new in office. And I guess they would have uh, wished for a little bit more time, I think, to get up to speed before geopolitics uh, started hitting them uh, left, right and centre. But it's a relatively new team in in London as well, of course, Annabelle. We've got a new government there. How are they kind of aligning themselves on the the geopolitical front? It seems at least on on Iran, um, they're sticking with the Europeans for now, right? Yeah, I think this is a really good chance for them to show that they're not leaving Europe as so many Brexiteers like to say and I mean, it's interesting what you're talking about the sort of geopolitical commission actually the UK much prefers the idea of the E3 which they can be part of and show that they still have sort of foreign policy clout in Europe and I think the, the, the nuclear deal is a good example of this. But Boris said he wanted to replace the Iran deal with the Trump deal. Doesn't sound very European. It really doesn't, but that's the rhetoric. But you talk to anyone kind of behind the scenes, and I, I can't tell you the amount of times that people have been selling the Iran nuclear deal to me behind the scenes. I mean, they, they obviously acknowledge that um, it's dead. I- Iran has... <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I don't think they do think that. It's like that. the Monty I think, Python I they... parrot uh, skit. <laughs> I think Boris was just throwing Trump a bit of a blunter bone for him to have something to tweet about. Um Maybe let's just um, move along to uh, something that's uh, been a big issue here in Brussels this week. Uh, The European Commission, uh, to great fanfare, uh, rolled out um, various ideas and funds that it has come up with to try and push the idea of a green transition going climate neutral by 2050. Big thing here, but big questions about whether the sums add up, whether there's enough money there uh, in the first place and the way that the Commission has uh, presented it, you know, whether all of that money is actually ever going to emerge. And Matt, I noticed there was also a kind of a coal summit, I think, in in, uh, Berlin today as well. So this is an issue in Germany as well. Do they expect the European Union uh, to, to come up with the cash here, or do they think they're going to have to pretty much uh, do it themselves from you know from the German budget? Well, I think everybody is hoping that the European Union will come up at least uh, with, with some cash. The, the coal issue here has has been something that uh, has been kind of a, a political hot potato for for some time because of Germany's um, 
energy transition, as they call it, where they're transitioning to renewable energy, which, at least in the short term, has meant that they're burning more coal because they shut down the uh, the nuclear power plants or are in the process of doing so. So, you know, this, this is a very emotional issue in Germany, as it is in other uh, countries, because coal mining has been kind of a, a long tradition, and you have communities that were built around coal mining, even though they're not many you know, people working in the industry in terms of actual numbers today. It's it's a very potent political issue, as uh, even Donald Trump showed in 2016 in the United States. So um, I think that they are hoping that uh, Europe will will help here um, in, 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 in some way, at least in a, um, you know, symbolic way, if nothing else. Annabel, what does the uh, what does the UK make of, of this? Uh, are they also committed to that to that climate goal? And uh, is there any sign of you know cash being put up to make it happen? It, it, it hasn't been such a big burning political issue, I think, because Brexit's just dominated everything. Um, and it's actually one of those things that now Brexit's out of the way that they're going to have to confront. We've had a very interesting issue this week with the regional airline Fly B, which um, was on the verge of collapse. And the government has intervened and, and said they're going to review air passenger duty. So they're actually actually looking at one of these green taxes, which is meant to try and discourage people from flying because they're worried about this regional airline collapsing. And that's raised quite a few eyebrows. And, and that sort of started a debate here. But it, it's definitely something that's coming down the road. But there just hasn't been the political space for people to get really kind of emotional about it beyond the sort of the usual suspects. Right. Obviously, you've had Extinction Rebellion and, and, and that kind of thing. But in terms of yeah. the government really kind of getting to, to grips with it, uh, yeah, just so much uh, so much energy and time and oxygen has been sucked up by Brexit. Uh, Reem, can you just give us a sense of whether this, this green transition is, is kind of, you know, a big issue in France just now? Or is it uh, all about the strikes at the moment? You know, the Green Deal and green transition uh, in general have been, you know, a priority for, for Macron and he's continues to sort of talk about it. Um, in fact, yesterday at Pau, he had he went and sort of met with uh, a group of citizens who were involved in kind of the national reflection on uh, sort of green transition. As you will recall, it was a carbon tax or a, a fuel tax that uh, sort of spurred these uh, yellow vest protests that are still going on, even though now, uh, you know, they've been overtaken by strikes with regards to pension reform. But the issue of, of green transition is very much present in France. And uh, the, in, in particular, the question of how do you uh, reconcile the need uh, that everyone recognizes uh, exists between, you know, what we need to do in order to save the environment and go through a green transition and how do you make it affordable uh, for those who are, you know, in the lower uh, revenue scale or even the middle class? OK, well, we've been talking for quite a while, so perhaps we'll just wrap up. But before we do, um, just a word about uh, some extra podcasts that will be coming your way next week, because Reem, uh, you will be in Davos for the World Economic Forum. We will have a daily uh, Davos podcast starting on Sunday night, uh, Monday morning, and then finishing off with our regular uh, EU confidential on Thursday. Annabel, I believe that Boris Johnson has banned uh, ministers from going to Davos. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. Although there is um, the Chancellor's going, so he hasn't actually banned ministers from going. He made a big a song and dance, but it was a good headline, exactly. And I'm yeah. boycotting Davos, obviously, because it's very fashionable not right. to go to Davos. Oh, well, um, that's bad but, news for Reem, obviously, but uh, I'm sure she'll rise yeah. above it. Um, Matt, <laughs> yeah. do you have any... Uh, you've been to Davos before as, you know, a member of the global uh, jet set. The globalist elite. Yeah, exactly. Uh, give us a sense of it. I mean, what's it like, uh, you know, for people who haven't been there before? Well, I actually wrote a very nice postcard from Davos a couple of years ago, which is why I will never be invited again. <laughs> but uh, it is uh, really a morning to late night kind of cocktail party, really, where, you know, a lot of people stand around in um, – you know, suits and ties and the types of shoes you would normally wear on Wall Street in the middle of, of, of the Alps. So it has this kind of, you know, absurd atmosphere. The most interesting meetings there are, are not in the on the formal program. It's all the interactions that happen in the hotels, uh, at the bars and uh, in the private suites uh, around around the village. Reem, what are you kind of looking forward to uh, most from uh, Davos? You know, it's going to be my first time, so I'm kind of coming with kind of a blank slate. I'm... I'm a little apprehensive about, you know, how much uh, is actually going to get done. I think that's a big question for me. You know, how much substance is actually going to take place there? At the same time, I think, you know, as you were saying, I'm I'm looking forward to actually seeing how that networking happens in that fishbowl. And, uh, you know, we'll see uh, the impressions I get. Okay, well, we'll look forward to discovering it along with you in those podcasts, Davos Confidential. uh, Probably the first one will land, I would think, late Sunday night. Certainly will be in your feed first thing on Monday morning. Now, how do you influence the EU from 19,000 kilometres away? That's the challenge faced by New Zealand. And for the past four plus years, the man in charge of trying to do that has been David Taylor, New Zealand's ambassador to the EU and to NATO for good measure. I caught up with Taylor just before the end of last year in his final weeks in the post. We talked about how he sees the EU from the outside, whether he has any tips for Britain on how to exert influence and about policies including top priorities for New Zealand like climate and trade. So now, here are some highlights from my conversation with the Ambassador. Ambassador, let's just get started. You've been here as Ambassador to the EU and to NATO since 2015. So how do you, as uh, an outsider, if you like, as a third country, go about influencing the EU, go about talking to the EU? Is there a kind of playbook? You're fishing for trade secrets here. Yep. Yep. No, I think... um, it's about good, honest diplomacy. You know, you, you, you try and engage uh, candidly and frankly. For us, the biggest objective has been trying to get a free trade negotiation up and running, and we've been successful in that. And I guess my learning from the process is that the earlier you get into engaging with the Commission and the other people in the Council and the Parliament, if the issue involves both of those players as well, the better, because... So much energy gets expended in getting an EU position on something that once the EU position is set, it's very difficult to have other um, perspectives taken into account. And bear in mind that New Zealand is 19,000 kilometres away from Brussels, so that's a long way. And, you know, we're very different. We're a little island uh, state the size physically of the UK or Japan, but we've got quite different uh, parameters within which we operate than, than an entity like the EU. So that's a challenge. 
Do you have any tips for the UK, which is about to be, in a sense, in a similar position, a third country, you know, doesn't have a seat at the table but wants to influence what's being discussed at the table? Uh, far bit for me to give tips to the UK that understand Brussels and Europe far better than I ever will. Um, but the basic thing is good, honest diplomacy. You've got to engage, you've got to find who the people are that matter and, and, and talk to them, and that's just what the job's about. And I'm sure the UK will do that brilliantly. Well, they've already hired a New Zealander, right? The <laughs> trade negotiator. Was that a good hire? Do you know him? I do know Crawford Faulkner. Uh, he's one of two heads of the uh, Department of Trade. Um, he's a very able, uh, extremely bright uh, diplomat and, and negotiator. He's had lots of experience the WTO and the OECD, and uh, he's, he's led uh, and, and been behind so many of the things that we've done in trade. So he's a very strong uh, individual to have um, advising and, and, and leading that work in the UK. So I wish him well. In terms of just dealing with the EU, do you find that that is a, you know, a coherent, cohesive body, or do you find that you know you're talking to people about an EU position, and then there are member states doing quite different things? Yeah, issue by issue, there are differences, and you see that play out in political reports on this every day. <laughs> so we do; it's a rich source of uh, material. But you know, you're at the end of your term, I wonder wh- where do you see them kind of you know, speaking with one voice, and where is it a bit of a cacophony? It depends. I mean, what I say to, to people when they they question me about this stuff is, you know, imagine you've got your 27 closest family members, and you're trying to make every decision about your collective family life together as 27. That's damn difficult. You know, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even do it with my my own immediate family it's just it's very hard and that's what you're seeing playing out and, and there's you know when you talk about family family is more homogenous than than the eu as a whole when you think about the culture and the history and the the language and everything else so you know it's not a surprise to me that there are these differences the pleasant surprise is the eu finds ways to actually work within the constraints of the system and achieve workable results uh, you can pick any number of issues over the last five years where the EU has found sometimes painfully sometimes slowly uh, sometimes imperfectly they've found solutions which I think is an important uh, positive um, and that's what I think we need to keep in mind it's so easy to knock anyone you know and, and so much of of the commentary these days uh, it, it, it generally is, is negative but um, you know let's give credit where it's due well, one area where they've been trying to reach common ground is the European Green Deal and the goal of having a carbon neutral continent by 2050. Um, and in a sense, uh, you got there just ahead of them, right? Because New Zealand passed a, a bill to, to do the same thing in the same time frame. Tell us just a bit about what, what New Zealand's big challenges are in, in meeting that target. What are the particular sectors or areas where, where that's going to be a particularly tough challenge? We are fortunate in one sense in that we've got a very high degree of renewables in our energy mix. The problem is that our population has grown rapidly um, in the last 30 years, so we're now on about five, just under 5 million people, and that means there's more emissions and more to deal with. Um, so we've got a, a positive in one sense, but dealing with emissions is going to be hard. Uh, the sector that, that most people will be interested in is our agriculture sector because we're a big producer of food. Uh, and we have a large ruminant animal population and methane emissions from them is, is obviously uh, a big part of our overall carbon picture. Uh, and we'll be w- working, I'm sure, with the EU to try and find ways to deal with this. How compatible, because we'll come on to trade in a moment, how compatible is increased trade between the EU and New Zealand with going climate neutral? I mean, you know, should we be shipping large amounts of goods from one end of the planet to the other. I mean, I 
personal, small personal anecdote. When I lived in Washington, D.C. a while ago, I remember looking in the Whole Foods supermarket and there was some very upmarket, very nicely presented New Zealand mineral water. Mm. Now, I'm sure it's lovely mineral water, but I'm sure that there's, you know, there are sources of mineral water closer to Washington, D.C. than that. So how do you square that desire, obviously, to trade with your geographical location, which is, you know, far away from a lot of major markets? Well, globalisation is real. We have it, uh, and consumers want to be able to, to purchase from around the world. Uh, transport, um, as a part of the emissions profile, there's been some recent studies on the transport component of New Zealand. I think it was dairy. It was either dairy or beef. I can't remember exactly which one it was now. But the results show that it was only 6% of the total carbon footprint of the product um, because we actually have the lowest carbon intensity for the production of food of any country in the world and that's because we don't use uh, barns and things that we keep animals in large parts of the year, we don't have to feed them most of their feed grown elsewhere Mm. and imported in, but the point I'd make also is that, you know, we buy European cars, they're our largest source of of cars in New Zealand for those who are saying we shouldn't be trading uh, that would have a very real impact on European interests and I think the German car manufacturing industry and the French one, the Italian one, understand that. Uh, so I'm sure they do. Uh, maybe just bring us up to date on, on trade. As you were saying, you know, obviously one of your one of your main tasks here, I would think, would have been to get the talks up and running on a on a deal, a new deal. Where do things stand right now? Well, we've been delighted that the process is is well underway. Uh, it's about a decade now that we've been working to try and get a free trade negotiation going with Europe. We got a reflections process started when President Barroso was, was leading the commission. Uh, then, when since I've been here, we did a, a scoping study, and we've done we started negotiations about a year ago. We've had six rounds so far. We got a really good first offer on goods from the EU, which covered ninety seven point three percent of all tariff lines, which is which is the second best the EU's done after Japan. Unfortunately, though, the three percent that was missing. It covered about 40% of our global trade profile. So so we're saying, you know, we know these things are sensitive for Europe, but we need to get into that space. So what a, were those things particularly? Uh, they were beef, dairy, and lamb. So those are the, the three biggies. So we, we, we really need to get into a conversation about the, the choreography of that. Um, but um, we need to get this piece of the relationship architecture done. It's the one trophy that's missing from our kind of trophy cabinet between the EU and New Zealand. And one of the points we were making before we started this was there were only six members of the WTO with whom the the EU did not have a free trade agreement or a free trade process. And those six were China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Russia, Australia and New Zealand. Now both New Zealand and Australia have started our processes, which is great, um, but we're keen to finish it. And coming back to the Green Deal stuff we were talking about, we've noted that the new commission and the the politics in Europe have moved very much in the green direction, and we'd really like to capitalise on that in our FTA. We think we're the best bet going for someone who would would meet you um, in that area and perhaps set some new higher standards that then can be taken out to, to others over time. Um, so we're keen to really uh, work with you and close close that as soon as we possibly can. Okay. Let me ask you just a few final questions in, in the course of your work. What's the biggest misconception you've encountered about New Zealand? What do people not understand? What have you found yourself explaining time and again or being surprised that people didn't know? Well, that's why I didn't think of. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I guess there's a there's a there's a sense that we're a much bigger agricultural producer than we are. You know, if you take milk for example, we we're not as big as Germany in milk production. We're about one sixth of the total EU dairy production. So there's a view in some quarters that that opening up to a agricultural country like New Zealand would cause problems but in each of the different areas I, I, I find I spend a lot of time exploding those myths uh, or trying to explode those myths and it's not easy um, so that's okay. probably the issue mm. And what will you miss most about Brussels? Wow, uh, <laughs> I'm going to miss a lot <laughs> lots of friends I'm going to miss uh, the wonderful residence we live in, which uh, for a New Zealander is like something out of The Hobbit because it's got a thatched roof wow. and it's quite it's quite special. Uh, and it backs onto the the forest, which we um, have really enjoyed uh, these last four and a half years. Uh, I'll miss my team. I've got a wonderful team of people I work with uh, who work extremely hard, far too long hours, um, but get good results in their engagement with with New, uh, the EU and the other institutions. And uh, I'm sorry to not be here to see our FTA process conclude. Um, I'd love to have seen that a bit further along. And uh, I confess I'll also miss frites and beer uh, from Belgium, so I'll be going and getting more frites at a a wonderful Belgian-inspired restaurant in Wellington just around the corner from our foreign ministry in future. Okay, well, maybe you better make sure that, you know, the the free trade agreement, make sure those are tariff-free. Indeed. (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) Ambassador, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. That was David Taylor, New Zealand's outgoing ambassador to the EU and to NATO. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Next week, we head to Davos. As you heard earlier, our own Reem Montaz and producer Christina Gonzalez head to the mountains to bring you interviews with the world's top movers and shakers, as well as insights from what is one of the world's most high-powered networking events. We'll bring you special daily podcasts, including your regular Thursday edition. Be sure to sign up as well for our special Davos Playbook newsletter. And that's all for this week. Thanks to Christina, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels, and thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.